Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Theory. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Kim Adams. And I'm Sharonik Boshu. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. High Theory Podcast is a proud member of the Humanities Podcast Network. It therefore gives us great pleasure to invite you to the 2022 Humanities Podcast Network Symposium on podcasting as knowledge sharing and creation. Like last year, we will have three days of conversations on all things podcast from October 20th to 22nd. Please visit the network website at humanitiespodnetwork.org. That's humanitiespodnetwork.org to find more details and for the link to register for this free and virtual event. Today, we are here with Amit Pinchevsky, who is going to tell us about Echoes. So, Amit, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Hi. I'm Amit Pinchevsky. I'm a professor in the Department of Communication and Journalism at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, in Israel. And my work focuses on the philosophy and theory of communication and media. And uh, today I'll be talking about Echo, which is uh, my most recent book uh, published by the MIT Press. Yeah, and it's a really cool book, and it is the reason that we think you're the right person to answer this question. So what the heck is an echo? Heck is an echo. (laughs) So nothing like a demonstration, right? (laughs) As you can notice, right, there is a repetition and a response here. And acoustically speaking, echo is a sonic reflection of an emission bouncing back to its origin. And in that, it's different from other situations of sound reflection, like reverberation, which is a kind of a slow decay of sound, like you would have in a big cathedral. So if the round trip of the sound wave is long enough to be perceived, it creates the effect of time-delayed repetition, which is heard to us like a response. So we can define echo more formally as a combination of repetition and response. Uh, not all repetitions are responses, and not all responses are repetitions, but echo is necessarily both. But this is where things become more complicated, of course, because when I hear my echo coming back at me, it's both similar to the original, but also different. It's both, actually. It's uncanny. It's familiar and strange at the same time. It's my voice that bounces back, but it's not me speaking. So there is some kind of strangeness, oddness involved in echo. So if echo is response plus repetition, the response is delayed, and the repetition is often partial or varied. So echo is about sameness in as much as it's about difference. And there is complexity here, and this complexity... you might even say duplicity, is what constitutes echo, be it as a phenomenon and as a metaphor, as a concept, 
If we look back, I think that for much too long, echo has been reduced to simple repetition, to kind of a reproduction of sameness. In my book, I'm trying to explore the richness of echo and rediscover it as an agent of creative possibilities, of creativity, actually, both in context of nature and culture. If we take our cue from the mythological echo, it's like, like mm. you know, kind of a formative story yeah. in the metamorphosis, the story of the mythological echo who was cursed by Juno to repeat the last words of others because she was a kind of a chatty nymph. Mm. So that was okay. the punishment, right? She would not have her own voice, only repeat words of others. And indeed, she repeats others' words, specifically the famous story of her and Narcissus, who she falls in love in. And she repeats his words, but she infuses them with her own inflections and meanings. And you can actually really, if you read the story, especially if you're kind of attentive to all the nuances that come out more, I think, precisely in the Latin version, the original, you can appreciate her agency as a figure in the story and how she manages to turn the affliction, the punishment into a creative resource. So she comes out actually as a very potent figure, I think, from the story. There is a lesson there, I think, which is contrary to the common on traditional view. Yeah. And you talk in your book about how echo is associated with female voices specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which again, puts the stress on to what extent is it active or passive, where the agency lies. And I think something even more fundamental about what kind of communication, what kind of relation echo constitutes. And it's a communication that is based on relationality rather than on meaning and message, I think. Cool. So against McLuhan. (laughs) Well, (laughs) and with, in a way, right? And with. And with. It certainly works against the traditional view that you can trace it back to Plato's parable of the cave. It's seldom remembered that before talking about shadows, Plato talks about echoes. Okay. And it's really interesting how he uses echoes again as comparable truth replicas, as a kind of, you know, like shadows, this is that it's the result of an outside source that is confused to be coming from the inside. It stands for reality and confuses the fake with reality. It's deceptive and derivative. Of course, there is an alternative tradition that we can also trace back, way back, to Aristotle, uh, who had a different approach to mimesis. Rather than condemning all the kind of imitative arts like Plato did, he Aristotle saw it as something favorable and saying that, you know, it's natural to us to imitate That's how we learn to do things from early childhood. It's essential to how we are, how we act socially. So it's not corruptive, actually. It's creative. Imitation is creative. And I think that also kind of echoes with echo. (laughs) (laughs) I think this seems like a good point for me to ask you our second question, which is how do I use echoes? Well, that's a great question. To begin with, again, following Aristotle's view, we all begin as echolaliacs mm. before we are proficient speakers. You know what? The echolalia marks this uh, prelingual phase of the interchange between parent and infant. It's already not just babbling, but not yet speaking. Okay. Right? It's that 
intermediary stage after which an infant, infant is from the Latin infans, which is speechless, unable to speak. That's so great. I didn't right? know that derivation yeah. before I encountered it in your book. And I right. was like, wow, that's so cool. <laughs> it is cool. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's the threshold beyond which we become speakers, hmm. no longer infants unable to speak mm-hmm. and becoming speakers. And that's been like a bone of contention for so many kind of debates in, in psychology and in linguistics and sociology. And so- what's the meaning? importance of that stage some make much of it mm-hmm. like uh, jean piaget who uh, saw this phase this echolalia as kind of an egocentric uh, speech that you need to outgrow from to become a speaker and others like vygotsky so it actually is a very social and responsive phase because everything that comes your way you you repeat back, right? Mm-hmm. Jakobson, Roman Jakobson, the linguist, mm-hmm. saw this phase, the echolalia phase, as the height of the articulatory potential of the human species, after which we lose a lot of our ability to, you know, to pronounce, <laughs> right? This is why we get accents like, you know, like I have and others have. At that stage, we have almost infinite capability of repeating and recording mm-hmm. Accents, and after that, there's a kind of you know um, trade-off. Once you use your own language, you lose the articulatory potential. That's kind of wild. Yeah, it is. And psychoanalysis, of course, from Lacan to Kristeva, Didier and Zier, they all talk about the vocal and the sonic qualities uh, in a kind of you know a, a bathing in sound, even before the emergence of language, even before before birth how sound um, um, surrounds us. And this is why echolalia as a kind of a sonic repetition is the foundation of any kind of communication and language prior to meaning, prior mm-hmm. to sense. So how will echoes save the world? I think that echo does more than save the world. Okay. I think it makes a world. And according to some, has the power to destroy a world. Because first, it's very powerful. In echoing, we can affirm something, right? Mm -hmm. We say that I affirm something, I echo something. I have the power to give it credence. Mm -hmm. Remember the famous scene from Spartacus, right? So I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus. That's echoic, right? Yeah. I'm I'm joining something. I am approving of something. I'm identifying with someone. On social media, we see that today with campaigns like Me Too, right? That's a kind of a coic rhetoric. Yeah, so solidarity. Exactly, it's a sign of solidarity. But some see in it uh, a sign of danger. Going back to Plato and this, even to this day, right? Some talk about echo chambers, right? Which are said to be destructive to democracy because you don't encounter diversity of opinions. Right, you're just sort of trapped in the sound loop. And I think here, the complexity of echo helps to see that, well, whether echo chambers exist or not, let's say they exist, because that's not completely clear either. But let's say, let's say they exist. It raises the question whether echo is necessarily always a bad thing. I mean, it could be bad, but perhaps it could be also something that is democratically enabling, because it allows for political mobilization of approval, of coalition. And that's 
nothing to say about the potential that it holds for non-human species. I mean, Echo, like the kingdom of Echo, is the animal kingdom. Bats and dolphins and whales and so many other species, they use Echo, or what is called echolocation, sometimes it's called biosonar, to navigate, to hunt, mm-hmm. and they do it in such ways that it's mind-boggling. I mean, mm. first, it's mostly beyond human hearing range. It's ultrasonic because it allows for better resolution of very, very minute details and infinitely small objects. I mean, bats can detect the tiniest insects by emitting and receiving ultrasonic chirps as high as 100 kilohertz. And the intervals are incredibly small. It's like a few milliseconds. And if you think that's incredible... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dolphins is even are more incredible because they're able to perhaps kind of have a different perception of environment altogether using incoming and outgoing reflection of sounds. Maybe the most humans can get to such an experience are sonar operators on submarines. At least historically, I don't think that's happening still because it's all <laughs> computerized. But historically, at least, they were trained to be able to decipher the minute details of pings. If it's skewed, how much of it is repeating and what kind of a shift comes back. So they, they had this kind of an art of listening, of critically listening to signals coming in, which, by the way, were ultrasonic signals, but they had to be stepped down so it would be audible for human hearing. Mostly echoes and the power of echo lies beyond human hearing. So echoes are maybe a way of connecting us with the world that is beyond human sense perception. Absolutely. But what it suggests also is that part of what makes echoes powerful is how they attune us or direct our attention or teach us to listen. Mm-hmm. That is the like world-creating or world-saving potential. And world-revealing, I think, disclosing, world-disclosing. It's a phenomena or even a concept that is in the midst of things. It's in the interval. It's from here to there and back. So by doing that kind of back and forth or forth and back movement, mm-hmm. it reveals the medium in which it travels. It, it discloses it. it. It makes it manifest. Yeah, because we think about sound as going through nothing. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it goes through something. Uh, absolutely. Although it might seem that there is little in common between echolalia and mythology and echo chambers and bats, and <laughs> all those things, and submarines. <laughs> yeah. But I think there is something in common here because it's not about the message. It's not about the meaning, but it's about the actual relation and contact. So echo is a means of making contact prior to and beyond the exchange of meaning. It's a phatic medium if you will, what Jacobson called fatic. So it it relates and manifests the channel itself. It opens a channel. Cool. And I think given the impasses in our political environment, the world that we are in, we Mm -hmm. could use some more open channels. (laughs) And echoing. Yeah. And echoing. Echoing could be a powerful political democratic tool for those who are marginalized 
for those who feel that they're alone in the view, they have to have echoing environments so to get together and then go out to the public. Political views and views in general need a holding environment, need a place in which they can be heard and tested before they can be contested. This is why echoing and echo chambers could actually be democratically beneficial mm. because they're kind of, you know, a breeding space for opinions rather than destructing. Repetition is dangerous, but also creative and constructive. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage your social media presence. Julia Arian Martins edits our transcripts. Owen Quinn composes our theme music. And Kim Adams and Sharnik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day. Bye.